Welcome to this Pure Voice activity. To access the entire activity, including downloadable slides and transcript, go to www.purevoice.com forward slash UYF. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Gilead Sciences Incorporated. Welcome to this Pure Voice panel discussion on hepatitis virus. This activity comprises two presentations featuring Drs. John Ward, Anne Balcom, and Marc Boulier. At any time during this presentation, you may download supporting materials and share this activity with colleagues. Hello, I'm Dr. John Ward, Director of the Coalition for Global Hepatitis Elimination at the Task Force for Global Health in the United States. It's my pleasure to welcome you to this activity on eliminating stigma around hepatitis B, Delta virus, and hepatitis C. Joining me in this discussion today are my colleagues, Dr. Ann Balcom from Prince Street Medical Practice Orange, New South Wales, Australia, and Dr. Marc Boyer from Hopetel St. Joseph, Marseille, France. First, let's recognize these three infections are major health problems around the world. For hepatitis B, 296 million persons are living with this infection. Yet only 30 million are aware of their infection through diagnosis, and only a little over 6 million persons are on treatment recommended for them. As a result, mortality is very high, over 820,000 deaths from hepatitis B. Delta virus is a companion virus that occurs in about 5% of persons with hepatitis B, increasing their risk of severe liver disease and mortality. Hepatitis C is also a chronic viral hepatitis. 58 million people living with this infection, only 15 million have been diagnosed and 9.4 million have been treated and 290,000 deaths occur annually. So large numbers of persons infected, large number of deaths because of inadequate testing and leakage to care. Now these viruses spread through exposures to contaminated blood. Any breaks in infection control, unsafe blood transfusions, or exposures to blood in the community, particularly when people who inject drugs, can result in transmission. For hepatitis B, there's also a large risk of transmission from an infected mother to her child, as well as in the household setting. And hepatitis B can also be spread through sexual contact. And those routes of infection are associated with social taboos that lead to stigmatization. All of those social taboos can complicate a person's getting the testing and treatment that they need. So let me turn to Mark for further exploration on this. Mark, tell us about the available treatments for hepatitis, and then go into a little bit more detail about the burden of hepatitis for patients. Thank you, John. So for hepatitis C, we've got very potent treatments. With the new direct antiviral agents, we are able currently to cure more than 99.8% of treated patients. We have no vaccine, but with the current treatments, we are able to achieve eliminations. For hepatitis B, we've got a very potent vaccinations, but for the treatments, we have nukes, nucleotide and nucleoside analog, which are able to achieve virosuppressions, but very few functional cure. That's why we are currently developing new treatment for that. And for hepatitis delta, there is no vaccinations, but of course, if patient is vaccinated against B, there will be no delta. The treatment of delta is currently based on pegylated interferon, which is a very poor tolerated drug with poor efficacy, less than 20%. And that's why we develop new treatments with bulivertid, lodafarnib, and the nuclear acid polymer. Chronic hepatitis B, delta, and C can lead both to cirrhosis and hepatocellular carcinoma. In fact, 80% of hepatocellular carcinoma cases worldwide 
derive from chronic HBV or HCV infections. More interestingly, the co-infections of HBV and HDV is considered as the most severe form of chronic viral hepatitis due to the more rapid progressions to HEC and liver-related deaths. The burden of hepatitis on the patients is substantial, affecting both the physical and mental quality of life. And of course, in addition to that, stigmatizations add to the patient's burden. Thank you, Mark. Let's get Annie involved in this conversation. Annie, can you talk to us about stigma? How is it defined and what are the different types of stigma? Thanks, John. Stigma in the context of health is a process where a person is negatively judged or devalued because of a particular behavior or their appearance or a presumption about their behavior or identity. This results in people being labeled, stereotyped and discriminated. One case I had recently where they went to the dentist and told them they had viral hepatitis and they were told, oh, well, sorry, come back at the end of the day. Behaviors then negatively affect those with the disease, as well as their caregivers, their family, their friends and communities. Within the health system, unfortunately, we still have a lot of stigma. Forms of stigma is social and institutional, but the most important one I think that we forget about is internalized stigma, where people actually judge themselves and feel somehow they deserve this disease, or I used intravenous drugs at some stage in my life, so this is a punishment. And so it's very important that we address that. And all of this reduces their quality of life, increased risks of marginalization and not seeking health care. The main thing is that it's actually healthcare workers that often are very responsible for stigma and, and people not feeling welcome to come and see us. As we've talked about, it can also affect their actual mental health with increasing risk, depression and of anxiety. I think we really need to work on reducing the barriers in the healthcare system. Thank you, Annie. Mark? Can you please tell us about the risk populations for hepatitis B, hepatitis D, or Delta, and hepatitis D? Yes, John. With the root transmissions, we know that this group is the people with blood transfusions, transplants, and other medical procedures with end-screen blood product, the people who inject drugs. And of course, this is more often among prisoners, immigrants, and homeless people. And some special populations, like men who have sex with men with at-risk sexual practice, may be at risk of hepatitis B and Delta and C. And sex workers or people with multiple sexual partners are at risk of transmissions for hepatitis B and Delta. Many of this group are vulnerable or marginalized with less access to health care and usually reduced health literacy than the average populations. However, we should keep in mind that the stigma of hepatitis can have an impact on both marginalized and non-marginalized risk groups. Thank you, Mark. Annie, can you please touch upon the routes of hepatitis transmission and some common myths associated with these? There's a lot of both ignorance in the community and with health professionals about the two different types of viral hepatitis. Hepatitis C, the majority of risk does come with sharing drug injecting equipment. But often this is portrayed to anyone who has any form of viral hepatitis. Hepatitis B, the main mode of infection is from birth to infected mothers and all this gets confused so that anyone with any form of viral hepatitis can get judged. We need to really make sure that we ask what does the individual person in front of us know about hepatitis and then break up any of the myths that they may have. 
you can't get this from drinking water, sharing food and utensils. I know of one family where they made one person in the family use separate utensils and you can't get it from shaking hands, hugging or kissing, coughing or sneezing. All of that's important. Thank you. We also need to keep in mind that stigma can have a real domino effect on onward transmission and persons getting the care they need because stigma, whether it's internalized by the patient already or being exhibited in the healthcare setting, delays persons getting tested and treated. So they are not getting early diagnosis before they progress toward end-stage liver disease or unknowingly transmit the infection to others. Some major barriers that stop persons from getting tested treated for hepatitis include a lack of knowledge about the possible long-term consequences of the disease, a lack of safe environment to seek reliable information, fear of social isolation, financial difficulties, and the lack of support from healthcare providers. Mark, can you tell us some of the reasons that prevent clinicians from detecting and treating hepatitis? Yes, John. This is mainly due to an inadequate knowledge about the disease. But also is due to the healthcare driven stigma. And it's also maybe due to the limited specialist clinic or appropriate sitting. And it may be due also to cultural and or language barrier. This is true in all our clinics, but it is also due to the lack of training in communication skills. And in some cases, it might be due to time pressure. Another interesting thing is that there is a gender inequalities. Women are screening more, but treated less than men. And this is found worldwide. Thank you. In summary, hepatitis still attracts stigma. Marginalization and social taboos are major obstacles in diagnosing and treating persons with hepatitis B, Delta virus, and hepatitis C. Understanding the routes of infection of hepatitis, the long-term burden of disease, and treatment options can help reduce stigma. Educating both patients and physicians can help prevent and treat hepatitis B, Delta virus, and hepatitis C. In the next presentation, we'll focus on communication strategies that can help engage with persons who need to be tested and treated for hepatitis, encourage them to undertake testing, initiate treatment, and adhere to treatment over the treatment course. Thank you. Hello, I'm Dr. John Ward, Director of the Coalition for Global Hepatitis Elimination at the Task Force for Global Health in the United States my pleasure to welcome you to this activity regarding eliminating stigma around hepatitis B, Delta virus, and hepatitis C. Joining me in this discussion today are my colleagues, Dr. Andy Balcom from Prince Street Medical Practice, Orange, New South Wales, Australia, and Dr. Mark Boyer from Hopital St. Joseph in Marseille, France. We'll be reviewing the strategies that clinicians can adopt to help eliminate the stigma from these viral infections. Our discussion points will include the impact of communication, thoughts around language, words to use and words to avoid, the importance of body language, and practical strategies to help prevent or remove stigma. Let me first turn it over to my colleague, Mark. Mark, can you tell us some of the reasons that lead to a stigmatizing behavior toward patients with hepatitis? Yes, thanks, John. So the reason is mainly the lack of knowledge about conditions and how to provide care. The other thing is the fear of infections. The behavior of stigmatized group, moral judgment from the healthcare worker, and also the fact that they are unaware of how stigma affects patients. Thank you, Mark. Annie, what are some strategies that can help remove stigma from the healthcare setting? Certainly in the GP setting where I work, we're privileged in that people often trust us and it's private and confidential, but there's many other ways we can 
provide information about viral hepatitis, have posters when it's World Hepatitis Day, develop a lot of resources. We can do a lot with our actual workforce too, from our welcoming receptionist to people to develop skills to work with people from stigmatised groups. Often referring people to peer support groups can make a big difference. And we often are finding that actually taking the treatment out to those particularly marginalised groups can help. Uh, In Australia, there's a combi clinic that goes to the homeless and goes to all sorts of places. But I think the most powerful way, certainly in general practice, to prevent the stigma is just to really make viral hepatitis part of your routine liver cancer prevention, just like we do with cervical cancer. So you ask your patient, are you born in a country where there's a high incidence of hepatitis B? So getting used to asking people in their social history and identifying risk factors. Thank you. Uh, In my experience in the United States, just normalizing uh, hepatitis screening as another prevention service that benefits that individual and really separating it from the risk as far as the testing is concerned, if they're positive, then you can delve into the care they need. And then secondly, some risk behaviors that need to be addressed so that transmission is limited to others. The fear of disclosure of a hepatitis infection due to associated stigma calls for exceptional communication strategies. And these refer to both the spoken and body language. Let me turn back to Annie. Can you tell us about communication strategies physicians can adopt to help patients with hepatitis overcome stigma? Yeah, thanks, John. The key stone for overcoming the stigma is to listen to your patients and to really build trust and rapport. So I have some people who say to me, Annie, you're the first doctor that's really actually listened to me or that made me feel normal. So it's just having a conversation that's not judgmental, making the person feel like they're not looked down upon. Um, speaking clearly and using simpler language with no medical jargon in particular and asking that they've understood what you said. And what may stun a lot of us is that what we're saying really only accounts for about 7% of the meaning. Our body position has a powerful role in communication. In fact, 50% of meaning is in the facial expression. 38% of the meaning is in the way the words have said. So, you know, looking the person in the eye, don't have your legs crossed, leaning slightly towards the person and really engaging. I mean, a lot of this we can learn and practice if we're not very good at it. What are some of the efforts you've done for your patients in this regard? Asking open questions. And avoiding those yes and no questions really makes a big difference. And using that plain language, like inflammation of the liver instead of hepatitis, initially it's very much providing reassurance, particularly when someone's newly diagnosed. Tell patients it's okay to ask questions if they want to see their lab results and if they're wanting referral to help with recreational drug problems, assist them, help them navigate the system. Thank you. Mark? It's important to work in collaborations to empower patients. We need to help patients to navigate through the healthcare systems and obtain services from community organizations and also use the peer groups in order to help them through the disease. We need also to develop an awareness of different culture, understanding about hepatitis specifically and health and well-being in general. Andy, can you give some practical examples of the type of positive language to use 
and negative language to avoid? Thanks, John. It's all about taking that time to listen and having open-ended questions. What are your concerns that you have about the plan? Tell me what you know about hepatitis and explain the options and involve them in the treatment. Actually take the time to say, do you have any concerns or any other questions we need to address today? The big thing is to avoid questions or body language that may make them actually feel more guilty or internalise their stigma. That's great, Amy. Thank you. In summary, educating and informing physicians about hepatitis and the impact of stigmatizing behavior on patients can help manage healthcare provider-driven stigma around the disease. Communication strategies adapted to the needs of vulnerable groups are key for diagnosing and treating effectively patients with hepatitis. Building trust and rapport with patients is crucial and could contribute to disease disclosure and or treatment adherence by marginalized patients. Positive spoken and body language can help patients with hepatitis overcome their fear of the stigma of the disease. Thank you for listening. This has been an activity published by Peer Voice.